when his mother dies in 1829, there is a reasonably substantial legacy that comes to Robert and his two brothers. By the 1840s, he's accumulated a fund of the modern equivalent of almost a million dollars. An excerpt from today's guest, whose latest book many are calling the definitive biography of Robert E. Lee. Dr. Alan Gelzo is here, and I'll speak with him after this break. This is Point of the Spirit. Welcome back. I'm Robert Child. Today's guest is Senior Research Scholar at the Council of Humanities at Princeton University. He is the author of several books about the Civil War and early 19th century American history. He has been the recipient of the Lincoln Prize three times, the Guggenheim Lehrman Prize for Military History, and many other honors. His book is Robert E. Lee, A Life. It comes out next week, and Dr. Alan Gelzo joins us now. Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. It's good to be in touch with you again. We have been in touch off and on over the years, actually going all the way back to a sort of Lee project with the film you made on Lincoln and Lee at Antietam. Absolutely. And uh, I looked at that the other day on, on Amazon Prime, and uh, we all look a lot younger. It came out in 2005. <laughs> I, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Time has a way of doing that. Yes. I've read through a lot of the book, and it's, it's just phenomenal. Before we get into the questions, I want to reference a review that uh, struck me. Alan Gelzo confirms his place in the top ranks of Civil War historians with his masterly biography of Robert E. Lee. Well-researched, well-written, and captivating. It will stand as the definitive single-volume life for decades to come. Gelzo's judicious comments on Lee's crime and glory might be a good place for America to start healing her present-day wounds. Andrew Roberts, author of Churchill, Walking with Destiny. Amazing. Congratulations. Well, thank you. And coming from and coming from Andrew Roberts, that means a great deal to me personally, knowing Andrew somewhat and having a very high esteem of his work on Churchill and Napoleon. Yeah, absolutely. In other words, here's a man who knows what he's talking about when he's talking the military figures of the great, great military figures of the past. And, and Lee is one of them. Let's get into um, the questions I had. Lee is such an enigma, the marble man, obviously. Tell me about how you, you believe his, his essentially growing up without a father impacted his life. It's curious to, uh, to see how often people refer to Lee using the word marble or things like it. Um, Montgomery Meigs, who most of us will identify if we're Civil War people as the Union Quartermaster General during the war, actually served under Meigs when he was a shavetail lieutenant fresh out of West Point on the project Lee was working on with the St. Louis waterfront. And Meigs just thought of Lee as the absolute model of, of gentility. He described Lee as being noble and commanding, but also, and here's the marble part, hmm. one with whom nobody ever wished to take a liberty. <laughs> hmm. um, John Schofield, uh, who would later become a Union general and go on to become a superintendent of West Point, um, did the same thing. He called Lee the personification of dignity, justice, and kindness. 
the ideal of a commanding officer. And uh, one, the mother of one cadet um, actually had her son describe Lee literally as a marble model. Mm. Although when, uh, when she actually visited West Point and met Lee, she found him to be very human, kind, calm, and definite. So maybe, maybe marble is not quite the best image. Mm. And maybe if what you see on the outside is something hard, it's because he's protecting something on the inside. And I think that's what's linked with the fact that his famous father, and his father was famous, Right. Uh, his father was Harry Lee, Light Horse Harry Lee, the, the famous cavalryman of the Revolutionary War, especially of the Southern Campaign, uh, the man who delivered the eulogy for George Washington, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen, uh, a man who had carved out a tremendous reputation in the war, but who was a complete loss when it came to peacetime. Um, he, he married uh, first uh, one of his cousins, Matilda Lee, and that made him the master of the, the, the ancestral Lee estate of Stratford right. on the northern neck of Virginia. And then after her death, he married a Carter, Ann Carter, which was supposed to get him lots of money. Well, yeah, it got him lots of money, which he proceeded to burn through in these witless real estate schemes in uh, in western virginia to the point where in fact uh, he loses control of stratford uh, moves to alexandria and then finally leaves the family completely when robert is six years old for the west indies uh, a couple of steps ahead of his creditors never robert never sees his father again i think that creates a wound because as Leon Edel, uh, a, a great writer about you know, the English literary scene, said, there's no wound so deep, so lasting as the loss of a parent before the onset of adolescence. And I think you find that in Lee over and over and over again. I think it's one thing that's very curious about Robert Lee, despite the fame of his father, and before the Civil War, whenever Robert Lee is introduced to people, it's always, and this is the son of Light Horse Harry Lee. Right. Robert himself never talks about his father. He never visits his father's grave until 1861. In other words, not until he finally starts to achieve some standing of his own. To finally have some degree of ease and coming to grips with the legacy of his, the failed legacy of his father. And then towards the end of his life in the post-war years, he actually writes the longest single sustained essay he ever writes. That's a biographical essay about his father. Mm. One, one in which he covers up every failing <laughs> of his father. But that failure, that absence of the father, just leaves this this hole in robert's life and i think you see over and over again how that drives him to three things it drives him to desire independence and it desire drives him for a desire for security right and it drives him to a desire um ultimately 
to be the perfect example of what his father wasn't. In other words, he was going by his behavior to perfect all the imperfections that Harry Lee had created. It's when you consider those three things, that drive for independence, that drive for security, that drive for perfection, that's what really makes up the marble in The Marble Man. I, uh, I agree, and reading your book, what struck me about his father's money issues, I, I thought connected with Robert E. Lee and his, his concern with money. And, uh, that you bring up. I oh, yes. That, that oh, yes. <laughs> you know, a great deal. He was always concerned about the money. <laughs> you know? I mean, it wasn't that he was greedy, because in fact, uh, when his mother dies in 1829, uh, there is a reasonably substantial legacy that comes to Robert and his two brothers. Um, taken together, if you judge by how he invested it, by the 1840s, he's accumulated a fund of the modern equivalent of almost a million dollars. It's not that he's poor, right. but he's one of these people who can never convince himself that this is going to be permanent. Something is always going to lose it. Something's always going to take it away, just the way it got taken away from his father. So he, yeah. he's, he's, always, he's always worrying about money. He had what you might call... Uh, he had the avarice of the keep, not the avarice of the get. He had the avarice of the keep. He was always convinced it was never enough. We'll be back to the conversation after this quick break. September 17, 1862, stands still today as the single bloodiest day in all of American history. The Lincoln administration now, for the very first time in the war, is desperate. It must have a victory. The enemy has now invaded the North. We cannot fail. There cannot be another loss. Among the men, about one in four of the Union soldiers here are green, have not been in combat. Many of them are only a few weeks from home. Many of them are loading their weapons for the first time as they're going into battle. For Lincoln, the victory at Antietam was more than just an item on a political schedule. It had become a matter of almost religious commitment for him to link Antietam with the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln and Lee at Antietam, The Cost of Freedom, narrated by Ron Maxwell and streaming on Amazon Prime. Now back to my conversation with Dr. Alan Gelzo. I want to jump ahead to, uh, from his youth to... Uh, after West Point, what was his first command after West Point? Well, as a, as a newly minted lieutenant of engineers, and bear in mind, he graduates second in his class at West Point, misses first by really by just a whisker of a few points. But he, he graduated, and, and by the way, whoever remembers who graduated first ahead of Robert E. Lee? Uh, not, not entirely, it was actually, it was a man named Charles Mason, who later goes on to become a lawyer and a judge out in the West. Mm. Um, but um, Lee takes a commission as a brevet second lieutenant, as all graduates of West Point did at that point. And his first assignment is to Cockspur Island. Uh, that's, that's an island in the estuary, the mouth of the Savannah River. And the task was to begin the construction of what becomes Fort Pulaski. Mm. 
Now, this, this is an interesting story in its own right, because it means that Robert Lee starts his engineering career in the Army in a specialty form of engineering that we call coastal engineering. Okay. Uh, I, am, I am not an engineer, uh, so I had to give myself something of a crash course in the nature of the history of engineering, different varieties of engineering, what kind of uh, education went into the kind of practice, what the dynamics of it were. Uh, Lee's projects, starting with Cockspur Island, are almost all coastal engineering projects. In other words, he doesn't build bridges, doesn't build railroads, doesn't build canals. He is engaged in coastal engineering, and coastal engineering is a phenomenally difficult uh, branch of engineering because there are so many variables in it at such great distances. I mean, for instance, you can be building a project at one point on a river or on a lake, but what's going to affect that construction can, can really emerge 100, 150 miles away uh, at the other end of a lake at rapids at the upper end of a river and you've got to have all you've got to take all of that into account it is so unpredictable so it's a real challenge and he i have to say that for this first project it's not entirely successful his commanding officer is a old-time army engineer named babcock he doesn't like lee lee doesn't like him uh the project really doesn't go anywhere very well and babcock takes himself off the scene he is succeeded by Joseph Mansfield, a, a name worth remembering because he will later meet Robert E. Lee on the field of battle at Antietam in 1862. Mm. Well, Mansfield is sent to Pulaski or to Cockspur Island to take charge. And, and, and even then, it's not, it's not happy. Uh, Lee complains about him being harassed by Mansfield. Um, Lee, give us a sketch of that. Lee, give us a sketch of this. He doesn't like being bossed around like that, especially when he sees no point to it. Right. So that's really his first assignment. After that, he's called to Fort Monroe to begin the construction of a secondary fortification uh, that is called Fort Calhoun in uh, the, um, the waterways of Hampton, Hampton Roads, uh, more coastal engineering. And from there, he's assigned to St. Louis to deal with the fact that the St. Louis waterfront was silting up. And it was silting up in a way that would have been disastrous for St. Louis. I mean, if it kept up at the rate it was doing, St. Louis would today be an inland town in Missouri. <laughs> um, Lee's, what Lee is basically tasked with is um, making sure that doesn't happen uh working the channel of the river in a different direction so that the river continues to flow past uh, the st louis waterfront and to do that he's not only got to build elaborate dikes uh to channel the river at st louis but he has to deal with the real cause of the problem which is 150 miles upriver at the des moines rapids so here is a major challenge in coastal engineering and lee is involved in that over a period of four years, trying to rebuild um, that and securing St. Louis and St. Louis's economic position as a major port city on the inland waterways. I'm sure a lot of people never knew he was an engineer. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not what I would call the most exciting part of anyone's biography, because we don't usually rush out to buy biographies of, of engineers. Right. Now, every engineer who's listening to me say that will immediately <laughs> put a black mark beside my name. I, I hope they don't. I'm not saying that in, in any way that uh, runs down engineers, believe me. Uh, but what we don't often understand about Lee is that he spends most of his career as an engineer building things. Right. And he never actually commands, this is a surprising thing, but he never actually commands troops under fire until 1859 when he's in charge of the Marines who suppressed the John Brown insurrection at Harper's Ferry. Tell us a little bit about that, that incident, the John Brown incident. Well, in October of 1859, uh, John Brown, the, the radical abolitionist, uh, hatched uh, his plan to trigger a slave insurrection. He would begin this by descending on the federal uh, armory and arsenal at Harper's Ferry. That would be where he'd obtain weapons and hostages and then hightail it to the West Virginia mountains where he would call slaves to his side and establish a sort of quasi-republic of slave refugees in the Western Virginia mountains, in the Appalachians, where they, they could fight off um, any, anyone who tried to suppress this uprising. And that would, Brown hoped, completely destabilize the slave system through, throughout the South. Well, in practice, the raid turns out to be a botch. Mm -hmm. And Robert E. Lee happened to be in Washington at the time the news of the Brown raid at Harper's Ferry uh, comes into the hands of the Secretary of War. He was the senior, actually the senior U.S. Army officer right within the reach of the district. So he is called over uh, to the Secretary of War, John Floyd, and assigned an aide, a former student of his, uh, uh, James Ewell Brown Stewart, Jeb Stewart, mm. and sent off with a company of Marines to suppress the Brown uprising, which he does, uh, partly because Brown's people are, are really so disorganized, they're already besieged by Virginia and Maryland militia, uh, but also because uh, Lee does a really good job of organizing his Marines, setting out um, you know, a picket line, uh, clearing the, the town, um, presenting an ultimatum, and then storming the engine house in which Brown had holed up with his men and, uh, and taking them prisoner or killing those who resisted. And it's, it's almost a model. It, it is done so cleanly, so neatly that it was all over, really in less time than it has taken me to describe it. <laughs> so it's it's uh, it's a it's a remarkable accomplishment uh, for Robert E. Lee, especially when, as as I say, when you consider this is the first time he's actually commanding troops under fire. Granted, it's a very small scale event, mm -hmm. but still, it spoke very well of Lee, and it held Lee up for admiration in many quarters, especially in Virginia. An amazing story, too. The whole incident. We're. Unfortunately, running out of time, Alan, I'm going to have to ask you back for another episode. Would you, would you come back and talk more about Lee? I would be delighted to do so, Rob. Great. The book is called Robert E. Lee, A Life, 
Alan, thank you so much for being on the show, and we'll see you next week. Okay, great. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Join me next time for the conclusion of my conversation with Dr. Alan Gelzo. The time we get to Gettysburg, Lee has, for one thing, managed to avoid McClellan's effort to destroy him in Maryland. I mean, technically speaking, the Battle of Antietam is a, is a Union victory, but it doesn't seem that way because what people expected a Union victory was going to be was George McClellan closing in and destroying Lee's army. That doesn't happen. That's next time. And stay up to date with all the upcoming guests. Sign up for the Point of the Spear pipeline at robchild.net and follow me on Twitter at robchild. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group. I wanted to take a moment to thank our growing army of listener supported members. You make it possible to continue our mission of bringing you the best military history authors, filmmakers, and movers and shakers. If you're not a member yet, it's easy to join, it just takes seconds. Scroll down to the bottom of this episode's description and click the support link. You'll come to our anchor page, click the support button, then complete the brief form. It's that easy. We're planning loyalty perks and giveaways to roll out over the coming months for our early supporters who sign on before the end of the year. So don't wait. Become a member today, and thank you for your support.